The Athletic. Welcome to the All Seen and Chapman podcast on The Athletic. We're joined today by The Athletic's Adam Crafton and our Sheffield United writer Richard Sutcliffe to tell us how Chris Wilder's dream job turned sour. And later, our Arsenal writer James McNicholas will be with us to explain the reasons why Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang was dropped by Mikel Arteta yesterday. Right now, you can subscribe to The Athletic for a special price of £3.99 a month for six months. So that's 40% off the full price of a subscription. You'll get all the analysis, the in-depth features and ad-free versions of all of our podcasts. Go to theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman to take advantage of this special 40% discount. That's theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman. Let's start with Chris Wilder's exit as manager of Sheffield United, then with the Athletics' Richard Sutcliffe. We were just having a little chat before we started recording, Richard, and actually having read your piece as well, which is fantastic. You were ready to appear on this podcast maybe in January, thinking that he would have gone then. Yeah, very much so. In the wake of the Palace game, you know, I, I actually, I thought he'd go. And I think, well, I certainly know people very, very close to him thought he'd go as well. It got to that. There was a week until the FA Cup came around, which was Bristol Rovers, and he just had enough. Everything had built over sort of a couple of months and it got worse and worse. And, you know, by then, relations had soured. I, I, I just think the relationship had broken down. It's been quite remarkable, really, that it's sort of carried on for another, what, nine, ten weeks. I mean, it sounds like he's been under pressure for quite a long time, not not from fans or or necessarily, I mean, I know, I know results haven't been great, but just the general working environment, it sounds like, it has really got to him. I mean, one of the things with lockdown is you can hear managers and players talking to each other. And and as your article says, before he shook Ray Lewington's hand at the end of that Palace game, he was heard to say, I can't do this bollocks anymore, which I think a lot of us have sympathy with from from, <laughs> from time to time. <laughs> that implies a, man, implies a man under stress from his working environment. Yeah, it was at the end of his tether, really. You know, like I say, I, even as early as that first week in January. He'd also just been told there was going to be no signings in January, which previously they'd agreed there was two loans were going to come in. But, you know, obviously the results were then horrible between the agreement that there was going to be loans and then January came round. So the decision was taken, well, really, we're throwing good money after bad here. You know, why not save that money? Which there is logic in. You know, I've, 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 I've seen it before. Huddersfield Town did the same two years ago when they went down. You know, they were down by January, really, and they bought Carl and Grant, but that was a long-term deal. I know Paul Jewell at Derby, his biggest regret when he was in that horrible record-breaking team was that he spent big money in January because he wanted to, you know, it, there was nothing left then when the summer came round when it needed a lift mm. after that horrible relegation. So I saw the logic in that, but because things had, had worsened anyway in terms of the relations, that was in a sort of a, one of the last straws for Chris that previously agreed he could bring, you know, he's chasing Jesse Lingard. Obviously, the moment West Ham get involved, he's not coming to Sheffield United, but he got as far as speaking to Jesse's representatives and explaining what could do in, you know, selling the dream, basically. If you come in, you do well for us, you could be playing at Euro 2020 in the summer. To have that taken away was was difficult for him. You've also got to think of the pressure he's, he's, he's taken on board as a Sheffield United fan. You know, he's got the big... You know, it, it feels a responsibility this season, every bit, as much as anybody. You know, obviously the owner's hurting. You know, the, the, the players are hurting. He, he took it more on board because he's seen as the man in the dugout. So, 
you know, I think everything just built and built and it sort of cracked a little bit at that Palace game. There's a sadness here, isn't there, Adam? And I don't just mean from Sheffield United fans and around the club. That There seems to be, amongst the wider football community and media, a sadness that this man who's done so much for Sheffield United has gone. And also partly because he is a fan as well. And I think a, a lot of people are, are feeling... You know, a lot of regrets that he isn't there anymore. It's a sad ending to what's been a really good story for an English coach who's had a, a massive impact over the last few years, big personality, clearly innovative in the way that he coaches as well. I mean, I think one of the things, you know, we know a lot about the relationship now between himself and the owner and the, the difficulties that emerged in that. Just to put it back on you briefly, Richard, how do you think it's developed between Wilder and the players over this season? Because obviously they've had a very different experience in terms of losing a lot more games than what they're used to. You know, even if you go back to those years where they're in League One and the Championship, this is a team that's actually only ever used to success. And then all of a sudden it's being greeted by adversity really for the first time and they've not been able to cope with it. Does that say something about Wilder's relationship with his players or about even himself as a coach that we didn't really know before? The players are still been playing for him I will say that you know I've, as I, I covered Huddersfield two years ago home and away in that horrible season and they'd sort of waved the white flag in January and that hasn't happened with this lot obviously it did yesterday and it could have been eight or nine nil at, at Leicester but they have been playing for him and the fact that you know 14 of their 23 defeats have been by one goal it's not like they're thrown in the towel so they have been battling with him I know a lot of there was a famous interview actually after Leicester last season which was the penultimate game of the season when Sounds daft now, but the European dream died. You know, they lost 2-0 and all of a sudden you thought they aren't going to get the top six now, which sounds crazy looking back at it now. And, you know, he was angry after that and he he sort of rounded on the players and said, you know, some of them, the League One players and the Championship players, which I know a lot of fans have looked at and thought maybe he lost the dressing room at that stage, but that's not how I've Mm. seen it. And I think a lot of that is to do with the fact that he's dragged this group with him. And, you know, I did a piece with Oliver Norwood last week, which sort of got lost because it came out Friday morning and then obviously all this kicked off. But he said, you know, there's there's the bond there between them that because he's delivered and Sheffield United have delivered as well, Premier League football. You know, Oli won promotion three years running, but it was only with Sheffield United he was allowed to play in the Premier League. You know, Brighton canned him and then Fulham sent him back after a successful loan. So I think the players came with him and I think that's still been one of his strengths, his man management. You know, he's obviously, he's, he's had... He's had pressure on his shoulders and he can sometimes be a little sullen around the training ground because, you know, he's human. He's a human after all, you know, mm-hmm. who picks up the, who picks up the guy who's got to pick up everyone else. But, you know, the, that bond stayed. And I think you could possibly explain a little bit, a bit away as well, that horrible performance at Leicester, that they are shell-shocked by all this because it's somebody who's been a constant, whether he's been berating them, praising them cajoling them he's been there throughout this journey and uh, and like I said most of that team have been on the journey for two or three years minimum where does a Chris Wilde I mean I look at someone like Eddie Howe who obviously left Bournemouth last season I know he's, he wanted to take a bit of time away I don't think he necessarily have wanted to take this much time away as he's ended up doing Chris Wilder you know these guys who have they've done what you'd say they've 85% of the job that they've done at their previous club has been fantastic but there doesn't seem to be this sort of real appetite for clubs above, I don't know, maybe top nine in the Premier League to go and get them. What I, and I struggle with that because I think, you know, you look at Eddie Howe's body of work over 
well, almost a 10-year period at Bournemouth. And there's so much evidence that he's capable of developing players, developing a team. And there doesn't seem to be this real appetite to go and get him if you are, I don't know, you know a team like Everton or above, I would say. It just doesn't seem to be there at all. And Chris Wilder, you know, I think this time last year, people were saying, well, he could be the next Tottenham manager. He could be the next Everton manager. He could, he could make that step up, not necessarily to a... Manchester United, City, Chelsea, Arsenal, but that level just below. But it feels like that level just below now is Jose Mourinho, Carlo Ancelotti, the super managers who are on loop. So it makes it very difficult if you are Eddie Howe or Sean Dyche, if he was to leave Burnley in the summer, what, what is that next step up now? Because it's not, it's not really clear. It's almost, can you just go and do again what you've done previously and really just have the energy to do that. And it must be very difficult to find that motivation to, to essentially go and do that same job just in a different environment and not really, really feel the step up. It's like asking a player who scored, a striker who scored 30 goals a season for Sunderland to go and score, well, when Sunderland were in the Premier League, to, to go and score 30 goals a season for Middlesbrough. I think that's a difficult psychological challenge for a manager. Yeah, very much so. And, you know, you look at it, and I think you've got to be a, a famous ex-England international if you're going to have any chance of getting maybe a top 10 job in terms, you know, obviously Frank Lampard with all his history went in at Chelsea, but I just can't think of anyone else as an English manager. Like Sean Dyche is an interesting one. You know, I remember Everton, he was linked with there sort of two or three years ago and I thought that would be a fantastic progression. Mate. I thought that he deserved, you know, a family full of Burnley fans. It had been horrible for him to leave Burnley. Because you do wonder what would ha- what will happen there if he does leave. But I thought that would have been a natural step up, but it never happened. And you do wonder then if your Dyches, your Chris Wilders, are destined to always hit that glass ceiling. You know, obviously, even a year ago, I think there would have been a couple of Premier League jobs. Yeah, if Chris had, had left in the summer, a couple of Premier League jobs. But now I do fear it could be a hard sell. You know, obviously, we 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 think Palace maybe might be coming up in the summer. Uh, if you're, a, you know, I think he'd be a fantastic fit there. I really, really do. But Palace have a great, op, great options this yeah. summer. You know, not, they've obviously got Hodgson, but then they've got Eddie Howe, yeah. Chris Wilder. Mm. I think Sean Dyche would be interested yeah. in that job as well. You've got this real. All of a sudden, if you are in that group of Crystal Palace, or if Newcastle were to stay up and Steve Bruce was to leave, yeah. there is possibility there for these clubs. It's just, I just wonder from if I'm in the head of a Chris Wilder and Eddie Howe, I'm thinking. Well, that's going to be hard work for the next four years. And do I want to go and do that job again? I think you could throw a few more in there. I mean, I, mm. I, I'd throw Mark Hughes in there. And and, and and people may sort of sniff at that a little bit because, you know, there are some jobs that haven't gone well for Mark Hughes. But I've spent a fair bit of time with Mark Hughes recently. And, you know, he is a boyhood hero as well. But Mark Hughes's body of work in the main, you know, what Fulham? Stoke, he kept it. Stoke were top 10, three years on the trot, I think, under mm. Hughes until Marco mm-hmm. Arnautovic was sold. There are a lot of managers who are, will find it quite difficult to get back in at a certain level. Yeah, and I think it's also, you know, remember Alan Kerbishley? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just just yeah. disappeared in the end. But it is that kind of, you've done a really good job at, at one club or two clubs doing a very similar level. Um, and do you have the energy to go and do that again? And, and the motivation to go and do that again? I, I think another example, probably a different style of football, is Roberto Martinez, who it took him to go to Belgium. It took mm. a different country to take him seriously again in order for him to get the job, you know, or, or the 
I suppose, the appreciation that maybe his record at Wigan and, and mostly at Everton merited. Because, you know, I think that the, the job that he was interviewed for in, the, in English football before taking the Belgian job was Hull City, when Hull, I think, ended up with Mike Phelan in charge that year and they had barely any players. That's how, I suppose, low his stock had fallen in, in English football at the time. We're very quick, I think, to judge people on the end of their reigns rather than the entire body of work. And I, I don't know, I find that I find that quite strange. Yeah, and I think that's the thing with Chris now. Obviously, after this season, as it's been, mm. it, it possibly be a hard sell to Premier League supporters. You know, like we're talking about Palace. And a year ago, you think, you'd, you'd look at it and think, well, Sheffield United, the way they play, it's exciting. They finished ninth. You know, they were, were nibbling away at Europe until two or three games to go. But now, you know, if, if suddenly Palace turned around and said, oh, Chris Wilder's a new manager... You know, I, I personally think it'd be a fantastic fit. I think he'd do a great job there. But would the fans be a little bit sniffy, like, well, hang on, this, this guy got 14 points from 28 games. Eddie Howe, you know, the, the job he did down at, uh, down at Bournemouth, fantastic. And yet even I've seen Sheffield United fans over the last weekend say, well, I'm not sure about Eddie Howe. Obviously, Jason Tindall's just come in. And you think, hey, I mean, you give your right arm to get Eddie Howe. But it, it's because they went down. And then they said, well, yeah, but what yeah. about his year at Burnley? You think, well, yeah, what about his 12 years at Bournemouth? You know, I... I yeah, that's the mindset we've got, and I think that could be a little little problem for Chris uh, over this summer now. Richard, just another potential problem for Chris. I think one of the things that's come out in in your reports and, and reports elsewhere is his dissatisfaction over potentially working with the director of football. That doesn't seem to me to be a sustainable position if he wants to be a Premier League manager long term. You know, the way that Premier League clubs are run now, a lot of pe- a lot of clubs would just insist on on having that separation between the head coach and the board and who does recruitment. Do you think that position was just he was uncomfortable with how the operation was going at Sheffield United? Or is this a broader rejection of the way that football's changing from Chris Wilder? No, Chris knows that that is the way that the game has gone, it's not going. And wherever he does go next, he's going to be walking into that setup. Unless you're going to take over a League One or League Two team when there's obviously less staff and everything does fall to the old-fashioned manager. Chris's problem here was that something that had worked very well, well, fantastically well for four years, obviously it's hit a road, hit a bump in the road this time, but he didn't want it to change because he has been everything across that club. You, you know, if, if, if Sheffield United needed an academy, somebody to coach the under-18 or under-23s, Chris was involved in that appointment. You know, he was across every single thing, and he liked that. And to go for when you've done that for four, four and a half years, for then somebody to come in and say, well, actually, we'd like to do it different. It was just became a line in the sand to him. But it'd certainly be open to it going forward somewhere else because he's going in with his eyes open. Whereas here, he just felt that it was, A, there wasn't a great, it wasn't an appreciation of what he'd done. And B, there was like, well, hang on a minute, you're changing things that I don't want changing because, you know, right, every, every club hits a bad year. You know, it, 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 it happens. You know, it's happening at Liverpool. You know, if you look at the form table over the last, I think since the first weekend of January, Liverpool are below Sheffield United. It does happen, it, you know, and he didn't think everything should change. And Did anyone say to him, right, Chris, you're, you're managing a Premier League club. The demands are utterly ridiculous. We have spoken before on, on this podcast and others about the demands on managers are utterly ridiculous. They can be doing six press conferences a week if they're in Europe, pre-match, post-match, telly. I mean, it's just, I'm bored of hearing from all of them, really. They're, they're, <laughs> and they're bored of hearing from themselves, the majority of them, when you talk to them. Did anybody say to him, Chris, look, 
if we bring someone in and they're in charge of appointing the under 23s assistant coach, it might just make your life a little bit easier. Yeah, I, I don't think it was done like that. You know, and no. if anybody had, maybe it would have been more open to it. But it's quite a stubborn man, is Chris. You know, I've known him a lot. I knew him when he was a player at Bradford. I was at the Evening Paper. That's, you know, that's 20 odd years ago. He's also somebody who, I think one of the things that gets him out of bed in the morning is confrontation and sort of, well, I'll show you. You know, he's, he's famous in his managerial career for, you know, pinning up articles that in you know an opposition manager said something. You know, he certainly did it when Leeds and uh, Sheffield United were going for promotion two years ago. You know, he'd see all the fawning over Bielsa and things like that. And it, it got his back up. And it fired his players up. And it, I, I do think that gets him out of bed in the morning, is that I'll show you whether that's an owner, whether it's you know an opposition player or a manager. Mm. It just went back to he just didn't want to change what he thought was working. You know, recruitment is a big thing for him. He brought Paul Mitchell in. It was his first signing. He's head of recruitment. And he likes the fact that it's a small pool. There's him, Alan Nil, a couple of staff, and Mitch as well, and a couple of scouts. And he likes that. He doesn't want... Somebody else, you know, obviously a big thing at Sheffield United is the way the Prince wants to do it is United World, where they're now on five clubs across, uh, across well, across the world. Uh, one in India, Belgium's the big one, beer shop, uh, and they've just bought one in France in the second division. And Chris wanted nothing to do with that. That wasn't his thing because he's focused on Sheffield United. But United World was saying, what about this player? You know, the sign Koulibaly, who's gone out to, um, to beer shop for three years on loan. And he's, you know, he's, he's, he's doing really well out there. But Chris... It didn't want him. It wasn't his sort of player, but he felt the you know the board were trying not foist it on him. But he was like, no, just leave it to me, and I'll sort out what we need. So just to drill down within the club, and it's interesting you mentioned covering Huddersfield as well. Uh, as Sheffield United, one of those best examples of a club who did well too soon for their structure and facilities, and whilst Huddersfield stayed in the Premier League after their first season. They only just stayed in. So maybe their ambitions weren't as much. And, and maybe, you know, Huddersfield have got a much newer stadium, actually, than Sheffield United. Maybe Huddersfield's facilities were more advanced. I, I don't know. But at Sheffield United, the prime example of, poor, we've had a great first season. Right, we've got to build on this and we need to do this and we need to do that. And they just tried to do too much too soon. It's almost they haven't had time to catch up with the team as a club. Right. You know, you look at the facilities and it, it, this year they have actually moved. That, that They bought an old working men's club about 20 years ago and they built the big academy building at the bottom of it. I don't know if you've been up to Shirecliffe Chappers, but they have that. But then at the top is the old working men's club bar. And obviously it's been converted, and that, but that was the first team building for the last sort of 10, 15 years. That's changed this season in the fact that they've moved down to the academy because the academy had to move out because of COVID protocols. But until then, they were up in this old building, which... Obviously, you make a joke of initially, and Huddersfield were the same. You know, anybody who came to interview them, I remember Gary Lineker coming, and he couldn't have, couldn't believe that there were people having a pint and the lunch and a pie, while David Wagner's walking through to his press conference. Which, you know, because it, it was it was charming and it was lovely, but it wasn't really Premier League or 2018 as it was then. And I, I do Huddersfield are a, a worry for me as well in that, or an example that could worry Sheffield United that they haven't been out of the Premier League for two years yet. And yet you would not know that Huddersfield Town have been in the Premier League. There's no legacy. Mm. The play, you know, they've had two relegation battles. They had a great win at the weekend, so they should be safe. But they've had two relegation battles. They need another summer now where the last of the sort of Premier League big earners will leave. But they are back where they be at, began when David Wagner took over, which was fighting relegation every year 
in the Championship and it's, it's almost like the Premier League never happened. And if that happens to Sheffield United, then that to me would be, criminal's the wrong word, but that would be such a big missed opportunity because this should have been a time that launches Sheffield United. You know, it's tough in the Premier League. We mentioned Stoke earlier. You know, they had 10 years up there. We're going to have eight, nine years up there. But nobody's ever settles as a Premier League team below the top eight to me. You're always your first priority. Even if you've been in there nine, ten years like Stoke is, you've got to stay up. Because if you go down, it's difficult. And Stoke are nowhere near going back to the Premier League. And they've and they've got a very, very rich armour. Bradford, Bolton, Absolutely. Portsmouth. Sunday, I mean, they're littered, littered with the yeah. lower divisions, are littered with them. The fear is Sheffield United could join that group for me. And that's why this, well, this appointment will define Prince Abdullah's reign, no doubt about that. But it could actually define Sheffield United for the next 10, 15 years because... They went down last time, 2007, and Neil Warnock left, and he was he was got rid of. It was sold as a mutual thing, but the club wanted to move on. Brought Brian Robson in, it didn't work. And the club, it was a sort of sliding doors moment because they were out for 12 years then, six of which were in League One. So, the, you know, the warnings are there in terms of what could happen with Sheffield United. So this is such a big, big appointment. And it's why the fans are upset because, and I, I, and I see it as well, because there was no better man to bring Sheffield United back to me than Chris Wilder. And obviously now he's, he's going to be uh, probably enjoying success somewhere else. Sometimes we've made it a bit of a cliche, haven't we, about you know fans not being in the stadium and things like that. But there, there is a real sadness about, after Chris Wilder, the, the relationship that he had with the supporters, himself being a supporter, the fact that he leaves Sheffield United without even seeing the supporters and without having any kind of farewell at all it is particularly bleak and sad I mean who would have thought a year ago when they went to their last game that would be the last time they see a game coached by Chris Wilder at Sheffield United very much so on that point you know it's, it brought home to me I think the last game of the season or last home game they played Everton and uh, usually the last game of the season obviously you do that lap of honour and lap of appreciation and the loss one nil to Everton that day but I always remember as the, all the players just slunk off the pitch in silence I thought how sad that they've missed out on this, you know, because it'd have been the lost one nil that everyone would have stayed behind and they'd have shown what it meant to them. And obviously that you, you now times that by a hundred in terms of obviously Chris, you know, it, it, one of his big phrases was you leave through the front door, uh, whatever you do, whether it's a match or anything like that, you leave through the front door, but this has been akin to leaving through the back door really and nobody there to, to see you go. And that's, that's sad after the great times that everyone shared together. So what happens next then? What kind of appointment do you think they will go for? I mean, Jason Tindall's arrival on a short-term deal just just appears very out of the blue, does that one. But does that give us any clues to to going forward or is that just a needs must at this stage? I must admit I was surprised by it, especially when I saw then that Alan Nil and Matt Prestridge and the rest of the staff were still there. I thought, well, maybe Jason's been brought in as an extra pair of hands and then if, if we like you, you like us, you stay on the staff. I don't think he's in the running for manager long-term or anything like that. I think that's quite telling that Paul Heckingbottom has got the interim manager until the end of the season, which obviously buys them two months now to do a proper, thorough examination of what obviously is a massive appointment. And it'll give us a clue as to which way they want to go. Will it be a head coach? Will it be a manager? I, don't, I certainly don't think it'll be a manager in the Chris Wilder mould where he's deciding who's the best fit for the academy or anything like that. You know, and It'd be interesting what happens to his recruitment staff. You know, Does Paul Mitchell follow him to his next club? I'd suggest possibly yes. There's so many things up in the air, but uh, obviously they've got to get it right. The biggest thing to me, well, whether it'll be a, a head coach, will it be an English appointment, somebody who knows the championship well, which to me it has to be. It's intriguing. It really is. It's uh, it's going to be really interesting what happens next. If they're sensible, 
and don't properly mess it up. That squad should get them back. I mean, your article mentions it. You know, they were looking at a 3-5-2 for next season. McBurney and Brewster as the front two. They both scored goals in the championship. If they could bring in a couple of Premier League midfielders on loan, they'd be not far off coming straight back up. Absolutely. Very good championship squad. You know, you, like Norwood's had a difficult time this time, but he's one of the best midfielders you'll see in the championship. You know, I know he's 30 this time, but he's, if he played well this season, Sheffield United have played well. Jack O'Connell's back next season. The thing is as well that it's the DNA of the club that like the under-23s and the under-18s both play 3-5-2 as well. That's helped in terms of Hecky coming in promoted from the under-23s because they play exactly the same way with the overlapping centre-backs and the wing-backs getting forward, the overloads out wide. If you're going to come in and you bring a guy who, who wants to play 4-2-3-1 or 4-4-2 or whatever, that's a big thing because the, there isn't a winger in the building. Possibly Oli Burke, who's been playing through the middle this season, but the squad has been put together to fit Chris Wilder's style. So that's another thing. You know, If, you, if you're going to bring a new guy with completely new ideas, which you, you know, most managers coming in want to make a break from the predecessor. This could be a, a quite a difficult uh, summer in terms of changing the personnel. Thank you very much for coming on. By the way, I'm a, I'm a big fan of press conferences that take place in working men's clubs where people can have a pie <laughs> and, a, and a pint as well. I think there may be an athletic feature for that. There, there's always one that comes out of the pod that we can maybe sell to the bosses. I like that Absolutely. one. The, the away dressing room this season at Bramall Lane is actually in the 1889 club, which we've had many a, many a boozy doing there. We have a Yorkshire <laughs> managers do. But I'm not sure if the taps are still on when when the away team go in and not in the bar in the car. <laughs> yours hope they are. Yours hope they are. Thanks for coming on, Richard. No problem at all. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Well, let's move on to Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang on the pod because The Athletic understands that Mikhail Arteta dropped his club captain from the North London derby because he reported late for it. And it's also not the first time that he has reported late this season. James McNicholas, are are you the reason that we understand this? Because you were in the traffic jam with Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. (laughs) Uh, No, I have to say, I did see Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang at about midday on Sunday afternoon, driving through my local neighbourhood in Muswell Hill. You can't exactly miss him. He's got a holographic chrome-wrapped Ferrari, uh, and you don't see too many of those around. <laughs> uh, Personalised number players just, well. just you and him, Just you and him with them it, in Muswell Exactly, Hill. Yeah. yeah. I was trying yeah. to say, you know, look, we've got matching cars, but anyway. <laughs> um, so at that point, I didn't realise that he was late. I just assumed he was on his way into the game because... Arsenal players, I guess like most Premier League players at the moment, are responsible for making their own way into the ground. There's a car park underneath the Emirates Stadium where they all park. It's part of the COVID protocol that they've had to follow for you know the best part of a year now. I did see him then. At that point, I didn't realise that he had committed the indiscretion of being late. But I have to say, in fairness to Aubameyang, the traffic around here has been terrible <laughs> lately. Uh, and uh, <laughs> so, you know, I do have a degree of pity with him in that situation. Are you going to be called in for a witness for him at <laughs> any, any disciplinary proceedings? Gladly. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, as, as you say, he, he was late. Uh, he was originally scheduled to be in the team. He was selected by Mikel Arteta. 
But having been late and this, as you say, not being his first offence, they decided that they had to take a stand. Mikel Arteta's non-negotiables about off-field conduct don't have any exceptions, according to him, and, and the captain isn't one either. So the decision was made to remove him from the starting lineup. And that explains the gloomy expression. I think the camera's cut to several times during the, the Derby win. Just on the not the first time. I mean, I always mm. find that a, a slightly unfortunate because it might have just been once previously yeah. or there might there might have been a regular pattern. And, and it might be it's always happened on games or it might have been for a bit of training. I mean, is this a, a problem that has occurred often? Are you aware or recently or... I think recently at Arsenal, there have been a few issues around timekeeping. And I think some of that can be attributed to just what a kind of physically and particularly mentally draining season this is. I think retaining focus and retaining discipline over that length of period is difficult. And I think Mikel Arteta wants to take every step he can to make sure that stuff is retained. In the case of Aubameyang, you know, we reported, David reported earlier this year, that he missed a COVID test earlier in the season and he was disciplined after that. I think as well, to place it in its true context, I mean, there was a situation recently where his mother was ill. He was granted some compassionate leave by the club, which is obviously absolutely right. But I wonder if the club, I don't know this for a fact, but I wonder if they felt, you know, we've really kind of given concessions to the player when we have been able to, um, and we have to draw a line somewhere. And ultimately, this time was one too many. Uh, and they decided to remove him from the starting eleven. I don't think there's any real reason for concern among the Arsenal fans. I think Arteta and Aubameyang generally have had a really positive relationship, and Arteta was kind of the key reason that Aubameyang chose to stay and extend his contract last summer. Now, this season for him hasn't gone perhaps as he might have planned it. Uh, it's not been ideal, but I, I hope, from an Arsenal perspective, what we get out of this is a very uh, motivated Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang for some big games coming up. James, do you think it's right that Arteta actually said it was for, you know, it was a disciplinary decision? Because, you know, there's a lot of times where big players are left out of games and managers don't go into, I know Arteta then, it was a bit late afterwards saying, oh, I'm not going to go into the details, having given everyone a pretty, you know, yeah. a pretty big hint before before the game. Do you think a Mikel Arteta with a couple more years experience would have done the same thing? Or do you think... It was, you know, maybe because he took a big risk. You know, if Arsenal lose that game, Mikel Arteta had made himself the main character of of that occasion um, and made that situation. I think it would have become a very, very big deal. Do you think it was it was right that, that he did that? I was surprised, I have to be honest, that he came out and said before the game, you know, this is a disciplinary issue because as you've kind of intimated, there are so many other ways to explain Mm. or excuse a player's absence. Arsene Wenger was forever having players, you know, pull up with mystery illnesses or strains. (laughs) Uh, And I think, you know, in some cases we know, and in some other cases we can guess, there was probably more to it behind the scenes. I think he he did, there was one famous incident with Thierry Henry where he pulled him out of a starting lineup quite close to the game. These things do happen. So I was surprised that Arteta you know, went on record. And and you're right, the result is key in these situations. I mean, if mm. Arsenal had lost this game, especially given that in the first half, you know, they were dominating Spurs, but not really taking their opportunities. Sometimes they didn't have enough men in the box. They weren't getting guys onto some of the good crosses they were putting in. Arteta, I think, would probably be being pilloried this morning for leaving out his best striker and his top goal scorer. Um, mm. Obviously, if you win the game, it puts a different complexion on things. And in that respect, he certainly came through very strong yesterday, Arteta. But... He did kind of make a rod for his own back potentially there. I just wonder if maybe he felt 
the omission was so glaring that he had to address it, had to explain it in some way. Maybe there's a degree to which he wanted to kind of make an example of saying, you know, look, a star player is not going to be exempt from the rules that we operate under here. But it was interesting. I was listening to Lee Dixon on American commentary, and he was saying how much he approved of what Mikel Arteta did. You know, he was saying, I think Arsenal kind of need this kind of cultural rigour to underpin anything they're going to do. It's a really delicate subject because there are plenty of Arsenal fans who feel maybe Arteta at times has not been consistent in his application of these non-negotiables. You know, certain players, it seems like, have been able to get away with more than others. And, you know, sometimes it's been like those factors have maybe governed selection decisions more than talent. And I know that a lot of supporters, there's a tension around that. You know, what should we be led by? But I think if you speak to players, staff, around the club or who've been around the club in the last 10 to 15 years, a lot of them speak to a kind of deep-rooted cultural issue that ultimately needs addressing. And I think it's fundamentally a good thing that in Arteta, Arsenal have someone who's prepared to take that head on. For those of us that aren't in the Arsenal bubble then and people listen, where, where do Arsenal fans think the inconsistencies have come? Well, one that was cited was, you know, Willian made a kind of uh, unauthorised trip to Dubai before the Leeds game. And yet he was in the starting 11 for that match. And I know a lot of people, um, a lot of supporters felt frustrated about that. I mean, in the case of Aubameyang, I'm sure Arteta would say, well, you know, he's not a first time offender. You know, we've been through the processes that we would ordinarily follow. Willian, I believe, was disciplined behind closed doors, but it, it didn't seem to impede his selection in that particular instance. But Willian is a touchy subject for Arsenal fans. Yes. <laughs> I don't know if you've gathered that. It's interesting what you say about what Lee Dixon said as mm. well, because I, I take both your points on, you know, if Arsenal had lost that, then the, Arteta would be getting asked a, a lot of questions, certainly by the media. But maybe the most important thing for him at this stage was to send that message out to his squad and and actually in the main quite a lot of, of of this squad being a young squad to to say right going forward you aren't going to get away with this yeah and listen ultimately Aubameyang is the captain right he's the symbol of the club and maybe maybe that's led to a situation where he's been punished in ways others wouldn't be because it's so integral to Arteta that he sets the right example and, and you're right there is a big collection of young players at Arsenal who kind of need aspirational role models. There are senior players there like Aubameyang, like David Luiz, like Granit Xhaka, like some others. And Arteta does have really high expectations of those people. There's kind of a core leadership group at Arsenal that he expects to literally lead the way. And uh, I think Aubameyang, you know, he was pretty disconsolate during the game and he got away very quick after the game as well. And I think knowing him, he just will have been absolutely gutted to have not been involved in this game. He absolutely loves these derby matches. He's got a decent enough record in them. Uh, he's normally at the heart of any celebration. The fact that he wanted to get out of there so quickly suggests to me that you know, he's feeling pretty rueful and remorseful about what happened. And Arsenal, you know, they've got a game against Olympiacos coming up in the week, which they need to, I mean, they're in a very good position, but obviously that's really integral to them that they go through to the next round of the Europa League. I wouldn't be surprised if we see him back immediately and very desperate to make an impact. It's not going to fester then, this, in the same way that others may have done in the past? I wouldn't have thought so. I mean, you know, obviously the Meza Ozil situation kind of hangs a bit of a shadow over Arsenal and they fear, naturally, Arsenal fans will fear, you know, are we going to end up in another position with another ageing star on a big contract? I think Aubameyang <laughs> is, uh, uh, from everything that we hear, a, a great guy. And actually, although there were some reports that came out of Dortmund about 
a lack of professionalism right at the very end of his time with Dortmund. A lot of people have rubbished that since. And I know Sven Mislintat, for example, who worked obviously with him at Dortmund and then brought him to Arsenal, just said he was an absolutely top professional. Uh, I think the quote was, there is sunshine when he is around, just a really good guy. And, and that is certainly my impression too. He, he, he was very warm, infectious personality. I don't think he is the type, famous last words, but I really don't think he is the type <laughs> to kind of sit on this and let it brew. And actually Mikel Arteta was in, incredibly emphatic in his interviews after the game saying, you know, Aubameyang's a great guy, a great player. We draw a line under this. We move on. If that is the case, I think it's a pretty perfect example really of a manager enacting some discipline. I'll tell you, it couldn't have gone better for him really to make the call to, you know, make it public and then get the result and effectively be able to double down and then say, look, it's a clean slate. We move on from here. He comes out of it very strong and very well. Just very grateful for that uh, penalty decision, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> they needed that result, though, didn't they? Um, after, you know, given the season that it's been, it feels, you know, having also beaten Chelsea at home, drew with Man United at home, second half of the season, if you're starting to see, despite what the league table may say, it feels like there's a bit of progress starting to develop yeah it's interesting isn't it because it's such a key part of football narrative that the league table doesn't lie you know the idea that that is the true reflection of a team's performances and I guess over the course of Arsenal's season factoring in that dismal run they had in the run-up to Christmas I think that has to be the case they have been on balance a mid-table team this season but if you look at the game since they beat Chelsea um, around Christmas time there has been a real uptick in performances and the underlying metrics show that too. They're creating a lot more chances. They're being let down by some big defensive errors. I'm sure you've noticed one or two of those. But I do think they are moving in the right direction. And you're right, beating Spurs was important. Obviously, the relationship between Arsenal and Spurs is kind of symbiotic and fans constantly compare how they're doing. And Spurs have been on an interesting journey themselves this season where in the early part of the campaign, they're being talked up as title challengers potentially. And now... You know, some of those XG chickens have come home to roost and uh, Jason Mourinho's <laughs> not sitting quite so pretty. But I think <laughs> I think from an Arsenal point of view, uh, that that's a really positive thing. You know, I think if you look at those two teams yesterday, they look like the one with a, a sense of direction and a style of play. Um, and that's encouraging. I think it, ultimately in the Premier League, it comes kind of too late for them this season. You know, although the points gap to those European places isn't big, there are plenty of teams ahead of them and you need quite a lot of them to mess up at this stage. And although some are doing it, I don't know if enough are going to for Arsenal to kind of sneak in. Where does that leave in this eternal balance of power in North London? <laughs> where, where does that? Where, where are the scales? Um, well, Arsenal, you know, they haven't finished above Spurs, I think, in the last two seasons. So, the, the, you know, the balance of power, as much as it, it pains me to say it, in terms of the current league positioning, has to be with them. Arsenal fans will point to their silverware, of course, uh, which is yeah. mm-hmm. a big differential. Um, I mean, I, I, I would argue that trying to finish above Spurs, certainly in Premier League terms, is the main thing Arsenal have to play for this season. Uh, and I hope they can do it. I hope they pursue it. But, uh, you know, the Europa League is there as well. And Arsenal, you know, for a club with such a rich history, have a really poor record in European competition. They've only won two European trophies. Obviously, the Europa League also comes with the prize of Champions League qualification. So I think that needs to be at the forefront of Arteta's thoughts, really. You know, if he can get to a European final, win that silverware, take Arsenal back into the Champions League, they will have rescued 
this season from what looked like pretty dire yeah. straits about midway through. And finally, is it easier to appreciate uh, the Rabona or, or as Martin <laughs> Kian called it with me yeah. last time I matched those two, the Ribena? Uh, the Rabona, <laughs> is, it, <laughs> is it easier to appreciate the Rabona when he subsequently got sent off and you won? I think so, yeah. I mean, Eric yeah. Lamella, it won't surprise you here, is not a popular man among the Arsenal fans. Um, and he came on with a, a, a lot of needle to him. I mean, he's immediately straight into Granit Xhaka, straight into Kieran Tierney. I think he was, well, to be fair to him, who can blame a footballer for going on a Premier League pitch and trying to wind up Granit Xhaka? I mean, it's absolutely there to be done. <laughs> uh, and Eric Lamella knew that from the moment he got on the pitch. But yeah, I, I, I was, uh, I was have to say, I was pleased to see him to see him go. And I think it was the right decision. I thought you did very well, Mark, to calm a very distressed and emotional Jermaine Genus uh, oh, oh, last night. God, he was fuming <laughs> for most of the afternoon. I was, uh, yeah, relieved to see that it wasn't Lamella's day. What an astonishing goal, by the way. I mean, I was sat exactly behind it and I could just see the arc of it, see him put his foot behind the ball. You know, he's got it in his locker, but it is a pretty extraordinary looking skill when he pulls it off. Um, and the nutmeg as well on it as well, through Thomas Partey's legs, oh, painful. It does take the shine off it somewhat, him being sent off. But I'm sure Spurs will be able to release a commemorative DVD of just the goal. <laughs> <laughs> just that minute of the game. Uh, right, thank you very much, uh, James, for coming on. We're going to let you go now, because if you've got anything to do today, you're going to have to leave early. The traffic round you is a nightmare, don't forget. Thank you very much, Mark. Cheers, guys. Cheers. See you later. <laughs> Great stuff. Cheers, Jeff. Hello listeners, sorry to interrupt your show, but we've got a small favour to ask. We're currently doing a bit of a survey to find out more about you, your podcast listening habits and the sort of adverts that are most relevant to you. If you feel like helping, please head to surveymonkey.com slash r slash athletic audio UK. That's pretty catchy, so I'll say it one more time. Surveymonkey.com slash r slash athletic audio UK. Thank you. Right, that's it. Thanks for listening. Uh, I'm back alongside Matt Slater for the Business of Sport podcast on Thursday. And we'll be back here again next Tuesday with David Ornstein back. The Athletic.